You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Keenan Harris, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I hope that you had a good Fourth of July weekend last weekend. And if you had a Camden City uh, camper this week, we had a lot of fun, a lot of noise, um, and it was a really, really good week. I'm really excited uh, to be here this morning. We're continuing our sermon series through our reading plan, that if you've been kind of in and out this summer, we've been um, all year long reading the Bible together and preaching through sermons from that week's reading. And we're going to be covering the book of Ezra uh, this morning. Now, before the last couple weeks, if you were on the reading plan or maybe even before this morning, if I had pulled the audience and asked, what's the book of Ezra about, I would assume the majority of us might not know, might have legitimate questions of no idea. I'm sure he's an important figure in the Bible would kind of be the answer. I mean, that's kind of where I was at until about a month ago. And so, or if you did read it, you're like, okay, but what's the point? Like, where is this headed? How does this apply? Cool story. Well, the reason why we read Jeremiah is it provides the context for what happens in Ezra. But before we get to Ezra, you know, there's been something that I've been noticing lately that when I've been having conversations with people about where they are at currently spiritually with the Lord, I hear one of two different responses. Either they say something along the lines of, well, where is God? that I'm struggling to feel his presence, I'm struggling to sense his presence, um, I'm, he feels distant from me. Or people respond on the other end of saying something like, I'm just wondering what the point of all this is. Like I'm trying to read the Bible, I'm trying to do these things, but I'm just dry. Like I'm wondering what's the point, does it even matter, or I'm even burning out spiritually. I'm just beat, I'm just tired spiritually. Do either of those kind of categories describe you right now? You know, I'm not trying to equate with us that our spiritual struggles are one-to-one the same as the Israelites' exile in Babylon, but I think there's some similarities that when God feels distant or we're spiritually tired, like where do we turn and where is our hope from? You know, Jeremiah 32 is a really beautiful passage and just a little bit of context that at this time, like I mentioned, the people of Israel, they are in exile. That if you read first and second Kings, you'll notice that it's a roller coaster of what that what life looks like for the people of Israel at that time. It feels like every single chapter starts with so-and-so became the king and he was literally the worst. You think this guy was the worst? Well, this guy is the worst and then this guy's the worst. And as a result, they're running after different gods. They're disobeying, they're rebelling against God. They forgot the word of God. They forget the celebrations and feasts. And as a result, and as promised and as warned, due to their disobedience, they're put into exile by the Babylonians. But in the midst of their exile, look at the hope and the promise that God provides again in Jeremiah 32. It's just really beautiful. I'm not going to read it, but I just want to highlight some of the promises he gives them. He says, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Give them one heart. I will make an everlasting covenant for their good. I will not turn away from doing good for them. I will plant them in the land with faithfulness, with all my heart and all my soul. Like that's really beautiful language that God is promising to do to his people, but it begs the question, how? Like how is he gonna accomplish this? How is he gonna provide and deliver on this promise? 
Well, Ezra is the story of how he does that, okay? And so I wanna highlight for us three big takeaways from the story of Ezra that apply to us today. So the first takeaway is that one, nothing can stop the plans of God. That in Ezra, it's almost mentioned as side notes or what I like to call these like, oh, by the ways, but we can't go throughout this story without recognizing the fact that God sovereignly moved in the hearts of three foreign Persian kings, that they're conquered by the Babylonians, but then the Persians come in and conquer them, and God moves in the hearts of three foreign Persian kings to fulfill this covenant promise in Jeremiah. Now look at how Ezra 1 starts. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So basically he's saying that in order that Jeremiah 32 might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So God uses Cyrus to send 50,000 Israelites back to begin rebuilding the temple. And as they're rebuilding it, there's some opposition and the, the construction is halted for about 15 to 20 years until another king comes to power. So you have Cyrus and then a new king, Darius. Now, here's what's incredible about this piece of the story. You may, if you know the Bible, and if you don't, that's okay. Darius might ring some bells because who, influ- who does God use to influence and change the heart of Darius? Daniel. That Daniel in the lion's den is what changes Darius's heart. That Darius makes this decree that no one can pray to anybody, you can't pray to anybody else but me, but Daniel disobeys that decree. And so he's put into a lion's den, but God saves him miraculously. And Darius goes and sees that Daniel has been saved and his heart is changed. And in Daniel six, he declares basically that all the people in my dominion must worship Daniel's God. And so it's through the reign of Darius that the temple is completed. And then about 50 years later, in another king, he moves in the heart of Artaxerxes, which is fun to say. And they, he sees the faithfulness of Ezra and Artaxerxes sends Ezra to teach the commands of God to the people of Israel. You know, John, John Piper said that God moves, God rules empires And when it's time for his people to move, he moves empires. And it makes me think of playing or watching basketball, that occasionally after a guy scores, you know, two or three baskets in a row, he'll say something along the lines of, he can't hold me. Guys, he can't hold me. And what he's saying is like, look, this guy can't stop me, so keep passing me the ball, and I'm just gonna keep scoring, I'm gonna keep scoring. Or if you've never played basketball, that if you just watch college or NBA stars make a basket and they zoom in on the, that player's face, they're usually saying amongst expletives, they can't stop me. Um, and this is what God is getting at. He's saying, they can't stop me, without the expletives, of course. Like he's saying that nobody, when I set my mind on something, when I'm committed to something, when I make a covenant, there is no person, there is no power, there is no empire, there is no ruler, there's no democracy, there is no kingdom that can stop or thwart my plans. Nothing, nobody. And so when God promises, for example, to always provide for you, 
There's nothing and no one that can stop that. That when he promises that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no one can stop that. When he promises to never leave you, to never forsake you, nothing and nobody can stop that. Next, that we see in Ezra, that God is committed to the worship of his name and his people's access to his presence. As mentioned, it's during the reigns of Cyrus and Darius that the temple and the altar are completed. And this is significant because the altar is where they would make atonement for their sin. That our God is holy and the punishment for sin has always been death. But God in his mercy and grace established this system of sacrifices so that the people could regularly make atonement for their sin, experience the bless, his blessing and his presence that God moved empires so that his people could worship him and have access to his presence. That our holy, great, and powerful God that can move empires is also intimate, gracious, loving, kind, and accessible through Christ. And I think it's also important to emphasize that the land was never the ultimate goal. That yes, it was promised to the people of Israel, but the goal was enjoying the union and the covenant with God and access to his dwelling presence and worship of his name. That the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelled. And he's saying that one of the ways that he is gonna be their God and they were gonna be his people was to reestablish the temple in the place that he dwelled so they could worship him. That he wants his glory known and displayed. And he wants us in his presence because he knows that's what's best for us that he's committed to that because what Jeremiah 32 is saying is that he knows that's where we are safe, where we are protected, where we are, it can experience ultimate joy is in the presence of God. And so look at what the people do in Ezra 3 when they see the foundation of the temple built. Ezra 3 verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments whatever that is, came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That they're saying, here's Jeremiah 32. Like he's doing it. He's bringing us back safely. He's gonna be our God and we're gonna continue to be his people. He's for our good. He's doing this with all of his heart, with all of his soul and they're worshiping and praising him because they can see the place where he is gonna dwell being built. Third takeaway, that God is committed not just to access to his presence, but also to his word being known and his people being obedient to it. That again, you fast forward 50 years and we get to Ezra. Ezra is sent to Israel. And why is Ezra sent? Well, look at Ezra 7, verses 6 and 10. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
You see, Ezra is a priest within the lineage of Aaron, the original priest, and he had set his heart to know the word of God and to teach the word of God. And so God sends him through Artaxerxes to go and teach the word of God to the people of Israel and to call them to repentance. You see, this is what is meant in Jeremiah 32 when God says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so they would not turn away from me. And the way that we would not turn away from him is to know his word. And so that's why Ezra is sent. But not just Ezra. Like there's so many big names mentioned in the book of Ezra that it starts with Jeremiah, which is a prophet. And then in Ezra 5, Haggai and Zechariah, which are two other prophets and two other books of the Bible, they're mentioned in the book of Ezra that over and over and over again, God is sending his messengers to call the people to repentance and to call them to obedience to his name. That if God's presence is the best place for us, then God's commandments are the best way for us. That he is for our good always. He's committed to giving us access to his presence and he's committed to us on being clear on what he expects of us because that's the best way for us. And here's where this has hit me the last couple weeks. You see, I'm seeing like two important things here. That one, on one hand, you've got worship and access to the presence of God. And on the other hand, you've got obedience to the word of God. And spiritually, I tend to pendulum swing here. That either I find myself emphasizing this longing for the benefits of God's presence, this longing for the promises of, you know, Jeremiah 32, this benefits of access to his presence, or on the other side, this deep striving for obedience. But here's the thing. These things aren't on a pendulum. They're one and the same that God cares about our worship, he cares about our access to his presence and our access to his word and our obedience to him. You see, we cannot enter his presence without perfect obedience or atonement, okay? And we cannot be obedient if we don't know his word and we can't find atonement for our sin if we don't know where atonement comes from. That these go one and the same. And here's what I mean what happens when we pendulum swing. So for example, on this striving or looking for the benefits of the presence of God, here's what this looks like. There's something interesting that happens in Ezra 3. We read in verses 10 and 11 that there's this worship and there's this praising of God when they see the foundation built, but not everybody was celebrating. Look at verses 12 and 13 right after that of Ezra 3. But... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And and though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. See, there's a group of older men that were upset because this temple does not compare to the original Solomon's temple. They were caught up thinking of the glory days. And, you know, we know what this is, right? This is why, not hating, but this is why, you know, college students, a lot of you still wear your, you know, high school, like, football state championship shirt. Like, that's your glory days. Like, I have a Perryton Rangers shirt that probably needs to be thrown away, but I'm hiding it from my wife so she doesn't throw it away because that's my glory days, right? You don't understand that that's where I was the man. Not really. I thought I was, but, you know, those are the glory days. And... I think we do this spiritually, like I really do. Before even beginning planning for this sermon, about a month ago, I verbatim said to someone, man, my college years were the glory days for me spiritually. 
and it will never be the same. Like if I could only just get back to those days. Isn't that an incredibly depressing statement? You mean, I, I mean to tell myself that I've peaked spiritually at age 21, 22, and it's just downhill from here until glory with Jesus? Is that what I mean? Like how many of us, I'm, I'm curious, how many of us are not growing spiritually because we're idolizing the circumstances of the former glory days of this huge spiritual growth for us? How many of us are not growing in community because we think no community will be like that one community we once had, that one Christian fraternity, that one Christian sorority, that one small group that everybody just got it and we were committed to the word of God. We were committed to the mission of God. We were all doing life together and so no community will be like that community I once had. Or how many of us are jumping from church to church to church to church because it's not like that one church we once had. Or how many of us are disgruntled with our current church because it's, quote, not like it used to be and never will be. If it's not gonna go back to the glory days, then I want nothing to do with it. And look, I'm not saying that in college, for example, like it was easier to spend time with the Lord. I didn't have three crazy kids running around my house. I'm not saying that that one community wasn't a blessing and a gift from God. I'm not saying that there isn't differences in churches and what you should look for, but here is what I'm asking you. Are you longing for the glory days or are you longing for the God who is in the midst of those days? Are you longing for these perfect circumstances, these perfect situations that you are looking for, or are you longing for the God who never changes? Circumstances and seasons of life are going to change, but God never does. And you can access him today through faith in Jesus. You don't need these perfect situations. You don't need this perfect Solomon's temple through faith in Jesus. You can access him today. That Jeremiah 32, we, we want the blessings of being in his presence. That his protection, verse 37. We wanna to belong to him, verse 38. We want his commitment and to experience his goodness in verses 40 and 41. But my question to us is, first of all, do we want those things more than we want him himself? And then my second question is, is are we living lives consistent with being his people? Do our lives reflect people that are enjoying the presence of a holy God? If you're frustrated with the seeming lack of presence with God, of God in your life, first take a look in your life, at your life, and are you wanting the things he offers you more than you're wanting him himself. And with this desire for his presence, second, is there equally a desire to be obedient to him in order to enjoy his presence? I remember being at a camp, a student ministry camp a couple years ago, and I had a student, you know, just talking with him, hey, what are you hoping to get out of camp this week? And he was like, well, I just, I'm frustrated with the seeming lack of presence of God, that when we read the Bible, I see God appear in burning bushes. I hear him speak audibly. Like, I just want to hear from him. I just want to access him and enjoy him. And um, if I just saw him, if I just heard him, it would be different. And I look over to him at worship one night and, you know, he's like, he's raising his hand in worship, but at the exact same time, he's scrolling through Instagram on his phone. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of him. I guess I am a little bit. But like, 
if, if that doesn't picture us to a T, I don't know what else does. That we want his presence, but really we want what it can have, what, what, we want whatever can offer us the benefits of his presence most easily. So if it's our phone, we'll go to that. I want comfort there. If it's relationships, that can give me what I need and God offers me that, but yeah, that's kind of hard to access, access, so I'm gonna get it through sexual experiences or whatever, I'm gonna go there. That yes, I'm gonna raise my hand, I want the presence of God, but really, I just want what he can offer me and if it's too hard to access it, then I'm gonna get it elsewhere. I'm gonna go somewhere else. You see, Like we may long for the presence and we might temporarily sense it, but if we're not regularly connecting to him and seeking intimacy with him through obedience to the word of God, it's gonna fade. And to be clear, it's not him fading or drifting from me, it's me fading and drifting from him. Look, access to his presence is one and the same with worship of who he is through faithful obedience to him. The God who is with you in the glory days is the same God whom you have access to today. And he's given you the word of God to enjoy him and know him today. But then you have the other side of the pendulum, right? This striving for obedience without seeking his presence. And this one describes me. You see, as this natural rule follower, I really want to please anybody and everybody. And of course, that includes God. I'll work really hard to do the disciplines of faith and be obedient to what God has called me to do. But I've shared in sermons, I've shared to staff, I've shared to friends uh, that this year has been one of the hardest years for me personally, spiritually. It's been really dry. It's been seemingly stagnant for me at times. This, what's the point? Does any of this matter? I feel like I'm really striving for obedience, but I'm not, what, what am I getting out of it? It's where I'm at. And look, it makes me think of, you know, I, I occasionally do some premarital, I've officiated some weddings, um, and I have yet to come across a married person or attend a wedding where their vows say something along the lines of, I vow to be your business partner for the rest of life. Or I, I hope, uh, I really don't care for that close, I just hope we uh, raise parents well, to, raise kids well together, I just hope we pay our bills really well together, I really hope we're passing ships at night, really, truly, that's what I hope for. Like no one says that, no marriage says that. That in your marriage you want intimacy, you want closeness, you want presence with one another. But if you've been married for 0.6 seconds, Like, you know this takes effort, this takes striving, this takes intentionality, this takes preparation, focus, planning. And if you only focus on the to-dos or the obligations of marriage without the end goal of intimacy and connection and relationship, then it will end up in a cold, dry, what's the point kind of marriage. And so similarly, if we as believers only focus on the to-dos and the obligations of being a Christian without the end goal of intimacy, connection, enjoyment, worship of God, then of course it will end up in a cold, what's the point kind of Christianity and spirituality. Where I was convicted writing this sermon is that I might be striving for obedience, but to what end and what motivation? because it's what's expected of me? Because it's my literal job that you cannot be a pastor and not be obedient to the Lord? Because I wanna be a good example to my wife and kids? Like sure, those are realities. 
And sure, those are okay motivators, but if those are the primary motivators for my obedience, then of course I'm gonna dry out. Of course I'm gonna burn out. Of course I'm gonna experience spiritual dryness. Why? Because the source of motivation is coming from self and external sources that cannot sustain. That the goal of obedience to God is worship and enjoyment of God. That why have you, why have I been spiritually dry? I'm be willing to bet it's that we've been neglecting the worship of God in our disciplines of obedience. You see, we say this, Jeremiah 32 uses this phrase that God says, they will be my people, I will be their God. That you use this phrase, I'm sure, on like Instagram when you take a selfie with your friends and you caption it, my people, right? You're saying that 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 implies, like these are my people, these are those that I have a relationship with, intimacy with, connection with. So when God says, these are my people, you are my people, there's a relationship there. There's intimacy there. And so believer, Like you may be doing a lot of things, but are you enjoying God? Like you might be doing a lot of things, but are you worshiping him? That it's the reality of God's presence with us that enables our obedience. That redeemer, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, I need you to hear this. Like there is nothing that can stop God's plans to establish a covenant with his people, to give us access to his presence, to give us access to worship of his name and to enable obedience within his people. Just as God orchestrated through the rules and reigns of three different Persian kings to fulfill the word of Jeremiah, God has orchestrated throughout the history of humanity to reconcile you to himself, secure your worship and obedience to him. The cross is proof of that. That God did not send his one and only son to suffer the penalty for your sin to allow you to live however you wanna live. Like he sent his one and only son to suffer the penalty for your sin so that you could experience true life that is found in faithful obedience to him. That God did not send his one and only son to suffer and die so that you could have, continue to have this burden of dead, dry obedience. He brought him back to life so that you could have new life, so that you could have true joy, so that you could find true life in your your disciplines of obedience. Like he did it so that you could experience joy and intimacy with him. That believer, Jesus was perfectly obedient for you. Yes, obedience matters, but Jesus was perfectly obedient for you. Breathe and enjoy your good God. That when we pendulum swing, who is our primary focus? We are. That if you want the benefits of his presence, in other words, what can God offer me? Or when we pendulum swing over here in this like deep striving for obedience, what can I accomplish? Where God wants us at is, God, look at what you've done. I have access to your presence, though I don't deserve it. And I'm going to display my love and worship of you through my obedience. God, help me to obey. Give me faith to obey and enjoy you while I obey you. That to tie this back to Ezra 7, the primary means and graces that God has given us to enjoy intimacy and be obedient to him is the word of God. That if you're wondering, like, I wish I could just hear from him. Well, J.D. Greer says that he doesn't give us voices. He gives us verses. If you want to hear from God, if you want to enjoy his presence, it's right here. 
that there are some of us that might think, I just wanna worship God and enjoy his presence, but neglect the regular intake of the word. Or other, others of us that we read the word of God, we come to the word of God, but we see it as this burden and this obligation that both are wrong. Look at what Jesus says in John 15, okay? John 15, verses four through 11. And I want you to look at this, think in terms of like enjoying his presence and being obedient to him, being one and the same, as I read some of the words of Jesus. Abide in me, and I in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So if you wanna bear fruit, if you wanna be obedient, it starts with connection to the vine. You are just a branch, so you need to connect to the vine so that you can bear fruit. You need to access him, you need to enjoy him, you need to have intimacy with him in order to bear fruit. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, this connection to Jesus. And then look, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That yes, you want to enjoy his presence, but keep his commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The end goal and the end result of abiding in Jesus is the joy of Jesus being in you. The joy of Jesus being in you believer. That's what you can access today. And so you want to draw near to God, that you want to experience intimacy with him and worship him and be obedient to him? Are you reading his word? And when you come to his word, how are you reading his word? And why are you reading his word? Are you reading his word to experience him and enjoy him and to worship him? That Jeremiah 32, that God is committed to doing good to you with all of his heart and with all of his soul, he will be faithful to you. The cross is proof of that. It's not just access to his presence. It's not just figuring out what he expects of you. It's enjoying him and worshiping him. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we don't deserve to. And God, I... I'm just grateful, um, though I take it for granted, I'm just grateful that I have access to your presence. And God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the gifts of grace that you give us that we know how to obey. We know what the path of life looks like. And I pray and I repent personally, God, of maybe doing the right things, but not seeking you in them doing the right things so that I can say I accomplished and I did X, Y, and Z. But God, I confess that I want to enjoy and I I want to experience you and worship you. So God, would you give us that grace today that as James 4 says, that if we draw near to you, you will be faithful to draw near to us. Would that be true? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.